0: I'm excited to talk about First Samuel today, and I'm I'm really excited that we're just talking about the Old Testament here at our church. Uh, I love the Old Testament, and uh, I think it's it's so lacking in many churches today. I was there's been I've been part of churches where you would rarely hear a sermon on the Old Testament, and uh, we know we're supposed to believe this is the Bible, but it's kind of like God seems angry and mad, and then now he became nice and loving, and and we tend to to buy into that sometimes. And so I'm excited to hopefully dispel that notion and make you excited about the Old Testament. So my goal is to to explain to you 1 Samuel 9 through 15. Yes, you heard me correctly, not verses 9 through 15, chapters 9 through 15. And uh, since I'm not the pastor of this church, I don't have the luxury of going into next week if I don't finish, Um, so I'm going to do it, but... Um, hopefully, uh, not, I'm not going to go over, but I was thinking of an illustration about how we should think about the Old Testament and its importance, and I, I was just sitting there yesterday, and I thought of the story of King Arthur. You know the story of King Arthur where he gets Excalibur, and he pulls out this magic sword, and he gets the rights to be the king of England? Uh, I might butcher some of the stories, so if there's any, like, Eng- Anglophiles here, you can come and correct me. But The way that I remember it, it's like there's this sword in the stone and there's these prophecies that only the king of England chosen by God will be able to pull this sword out of the stone. And King Arthur does that and I was thinking, if we know the Old Testament, it's almost like the difference between someone who is passing through town... They're from somewhere else, and they just happen to be there when Arthur pulls the stone from the sword. And everyone's freaking out, and they're like, that's pretty cool. He seems strong, you know. He got the sword out of the stone. And they might be excited. They might see all these people uh, stoked about what he's done. But then imagine if you grew up in that town. And you see this sword in the stone, and you're like a little kid. I just put myself back then. And you, you, like, every time a great hero comes into town, you go over and you see, is he the one? Is he the King of England? You, like, I, you know, you'd go, I would probably go over there and try to, like, pull it out myself. And when you're a little kid, imagine that person when they see the stone, the sword pulled from the stone. They're rejoicing, you know, this is the King of England. He's the one finally who's come to lead the people, to fight the enemies. Both people could be excited, but one person knows why they're excited, and they can see the glory of what's happening here. And I think that's a good picture of why we need the Old Testament. The Old Testament preaches Christ to us. We should think of the Old Testament as Christian scripture. It it points to Jesus. Tertullian, the early church father, said that there's two instruments of God, the Old and the New Testament, and both are necessary. So that's just my little plug for you to listen, even though this is the Old Testament. And I, I know you already love it, but let's talk about 1 Samuel. I have three questions that I want to ask you. That's the structure of my message. Three questions that I want to ask. And before we get to the text, I want to I ask the question, what does Israel already know about kings? What does Israel already know about kings? And I'm actually going to go back even before 1 Samuel, since I'm the first one to deal with, with the first king. But this is important when we're reading the Old Testament, we need to enter into the mind of the original audience. There's so many things that happen in the Old Testament that we just read, and since we know the Old Testament's weird, we're like, well, it's another weird thing. You know, he cut the animals, walked before, it. I guess everybody was doing that all the time. But we need to go and enter into the mind of Israel, the mind of the recipients of this letter, and understand what they would have already expected about a king. So, what is the Israelite expectation of a king? And I'm going to apologize ahead of time for talking fast, but I'm going to try to cover six chapters here, so that's my excuse. First of all, you see that the first representative of God on earth, right, Adam, he's described as someone who rules. And who does what? He exercises dominion. He reigns. Psalm 8 tells us that that man was supposed to be crowned with glory and honor. You have language of a a crown, of ruling and reigning, of exercising dominion. And fighting the enemies of God. That word, uh, to work and keep the garden. We just discussed this in the class this morning. But to keep there doesn't mean like, you know, keep it really nice. Make sure there's new mulch, you know, and trim the hedges. To keep his, to guard in Hebrew, Shamar. It's like Adam is supposed to be working, he's naming, and he's he's standing there looking around like he has a, a sword on his side ready to guard the garden from the enemies of God. And of course, we know instead he joins the rebellion against God. But that original figure was a king, and then we're told that there will be a war. The war's not over. Satan has not won. There will be enmity between the man and the woman, and the the seed of the woman will triumph in the end. She will, or he, will crush the serpent's head. And in doing so, his heel will be bruised, but he will win. And so we're guaranteed the victory of God's man. Uh, A second Adam. Another chance. The other thing I want to highlight about Adam is he was to obey. That's what he was called to do. Remember Romans 5? By one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world. Spoiler alert, by one man's obedience, then many will be made righteous. But obedience is the key. We need a king who's going to obey God. He has a mission from God and he needs to obey. And then even in the promise made to Abraham, where we have Genesis 3.15 working, moving forward, pointing us to the hope of the one who will crush the serpent's head, in Genesis 15, God promises to Abraham that through his offspring, through the seed, it's now not just from Adam, but from Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his crushing of the seed of the serpent. In Genesis 17, it will be kings who come from Abraham. Kings come from Abraham. Later to Abraham's descendants, God repeats the promise. He says, kings will come from your body. So we see here there's already this expectation of a king. Before we even get to Samuel, the people of Israel, since they know their Bibles, they know there's a king who's coming. And they're probably asking at different figures, is this the king? It's the title of my message. Is this the king? Then we get to Moses, right? And he gives the law of God to Israel. He brings in the law. And in that very law, what we read this morning that John read for us, Pastor Rourke, he, he read that there's a provision made for the king. When the people of Israel say, we want a king to be like all the other nations, God says you can have a king, but he needs to not go down to Egypt and get horses. He needs to not have a lot of gold or a lot of wives. There's one professor that I had that he would always just term that the three G's, gold, gals, and giddy up. Gold, gals, and giddy-up. That's what the kings can't do. And later you'll see the kings, it's always like, this is an example of it's not a random detail in the Old Testament. You read later in Kings, it's like, and this king was amazing, and he did all these awesome things, and he had lots of gold and many wives. And you're like, ah, oh, it's not the king. Is this the king? No. So there's already an expectation of the king, but the other thing that's so important about the king in Deuteronomy 17 is the need for Obedience. Remember, he doesn't just say, no, gold, gals, giddy-up. It's this king is supposed to do one thing. He's supposed to take the law, the law of God, the first five books, and copy out every word. And he's supposed to become an expert in the law. The king, I think he's like the lawman. He's a lawyer. He knows the law. He's the one who who has memorized it. He's the expert. And he he can't just know it. He can't just hear it. He needs to... Do it. So we have an expectation for a king who needs to obey, who's going to fight God's enemies, who's going to crush the serpent's head. And then even Balaam. Balaam, do you remember Balaam? I don't want to get derailed by this because I love the story. You know, it's where, where he's, he's riding on the donkey, and then the donkey sees the angel with the sword, and then he doesn't see it, so he's like, donkey, you know, and he's getting all frustrated. And then his donkey falls on the ground, and he's like beating it. And the donkey talks to him and says, I forget exactly what it is, but it's like, I'm your donkey. I've served you all the days of my life. And then Balaam says, if I had a sword, I would kill you. I was just I'm like, that's not what I would say to a talking animal for the first time. <laughs> like the first thing he says, you know, if my dog started talking and I bugged at it. He's like, I'm going to kill you, you stupid dog. It's like, what? He's talking. This is like, anyways, that's not related to anything I'm saying, but Bala- that's Balaam. Balaam goes and he makes these prophecies and he goes to the king of Moab, summons Balaam and he sees all the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. God's delivered them and the king of Moab summons Balaam and says, go and curse, curse the people. And Balaam, filled with the spirit, has to bless the nation. And he keeps blessing the nation over and over. And and the king of Moab is like, let's go over here, let's go over there, let's try this hill, and let's see if you can actually curse the nation. And he continues to bless. And he says things like this, The Lord is their God is with them, Numbers 23, and the shout of a king is among them. Numbers 24, Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His kingdom shall be exalted. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces. Numbers 24, 17, Balaam says, A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead. Sound familiar? Of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. Adam, and destroy the survivors of cities. Finally, and we'll get to the text, Judges, the book of Judges, four different times you have referenced the wickedness of the people, right? They keep doing what? What's right in their own eyes. And it's this cycle. And they do what's right in their own eyes. They cry out to the Lord. He sends a judge, raises up and delivers them. There's some awesome stories in there. I used to love the story around the dinner table of Ehud, you know, the left-handed man. I have a message from God for you. And he stabs Eglon. Eglon was very fat, you know. Just like, people say the Bible is boring. I just, I don't understand. But judges, you have when there's, no ki- when there's wickedness in the land, they say there's no king in Israel. These two things are connected. There's wickedness in the land and there's no king in Israel. And that's exactly how the book of Judges ends. Um, right at the end it says in Judges 21-25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the expectation of Israel. Samuel doesn't introduce them to the hope of a king. They're already expecting it, and we've seen that in, in 1 Samuel 2, right? In, in the prayer of, of, of Hannah, Hannah, the great theologian. What I also love, too, is it says in there, um, John kept emphasizing, Hannah Rose, which is my wife's first and middle name, so she got name-dropped throughout the whole sermon, Hannah Rose. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because of that, but... But what is is Hannah, the last part of her prayer? Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Anointed Mashiach, Messiah. She's looking for the Messiah. She's looking for the king. Hannah is a theologian. She knows all of this stuff. And this is the hope of the people of Israel. The common people knew this and were expecting it. And they need a king. Let me just catch us up to our passage in 1 Samuel. As we heard, it starts off with a barren woman. And what does Deuteronomy 28 say? Barrenness for Israel is a curse from God. If you are obedient, Israel, you will have fruit of the womb. If you're disobedient, you'll be barren. Now, to be very clear, that's for the Mosaic Covenant only. That's for Israel. That's not true today. Uh, It's not a sign of God's curse uh, to be barren. But then it was. So we should be thinking, okay, they're breaking the law, right? When we read Samuel, this is bad. Uh, Pastor Rohr already told us about this. But I'm just reminding you. And then you also see defeat. Defeat in battle, right? They go out to fight the Philistines, and they think, we're going to just bring this ark. It's like a good luck charm into battle. And it's taken. And by the way, the Philistines have better theology than the Israelites at this point. Because when they see the ark, they say, oh, no, we're going to be defeated like the Egyptians. And Hannah takes this dark situation, and she connects their disobedience to the law and says, we need a king. We need a king who's going to obey. In Deuteronomy, it talks about how the king needs to obey, and he's going to lead the people in obedience. There's a connection between the king's obedience and the people's obedience. And as we'll see later, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. As it goes with the people, so it goes with the king. That brings us to our passage today. Well, actually, sorry, one more thing. Um, In 1 Samuel 8, we see that the people have rejected God and asked for a king, right? They say, we want a king to be like the other nations. And you might ask yourself, why is that wrong? Because in Deuteronomy 17, it says, when you do this, it's fine. Here's what that king should be like. But we find out later in chapter 8, as we covered last week, the reason they want the king is to go and fight for them, to deliver them. Which is what God's been doing this whole time. He's been fighting for them. He's been going before them, fighting their battles. They need to only be still and watch the salvation of God, we heard uh, a few weeks ago in Exodus. And so, when they ask for a king, they are rejecting God, but God is going to work through that anyways. He promises through he always turns evil into good, but he promises in this instance, when you go and reject me, that's how I'm going to establish my kingdom. When you go and reject me, that's how I'm going to establish my kingdom. Does that sound familiar? We have no king but Caesar. Which brings us to our text today. 1st Samuel 9 through 15 and I wish I could spend like six weeks on this. We're going to have to skip through it. I'm just going to summarize these chapters and read some key verses here so we get the flow of the story. But in the context of Samuel saying to the people, you've rejected God. You want your own king. And I'm going to give him to you. We're introduced to Saul. Chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul. And Saul is kind of interesting in the beginning. We're told that he... In verse 2, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This was the women of Israel's top pick for king. One guy said, I didn't really get the, didn't think this person would seem very handsome, but they said it's LeBron James, JFK, and George Clooney combined. That's Saul. Be a weird person, but. Saul, they draw your mind instantly to how he looks. How he looks on the outside, Saul, we're told, oh, he is handsome, he's tall. But those outer realities don't really tell us what we need to know about Saul. When we're introduced to Saul, he's looking for three donkeys. and the language, it gives a bunch of places that he goes and looks for the donkeys over here and over there. And the idea that we get, if you look at those places, is he's wandering all over Israel looking for the donkeys. It's like kind of the idea of, like, this guy can't even find the donkeys. Like, he's going to be the king he, he can't find anything. And finally, him and his servant, they get this idea to go talk to Samuel. And Samuel will tell them where the donkeys are. And that's how we're introduced to Saul. And they're like, and Saul's like, I don't have any bread to give him. He's not going to tell me where the donkeys are. And his servant's like, I have a coin. You know, I have some money to give him. It's just, it's, it's supposed to be kind of odd. We're, here's this king, and then he's kind of a, a klutz. He doesn't really know what's going on. But God also says to Samuel, he's working through this and says, Samuel... When you see this man, he's going to be the king. You're going to see this man, and he's going to be the king. And so in 1 Samuel 9, we, we are told that. And specifically, I want to point out one more thing about chapter 9. It says that Samuel says, to, or the Lord says to Samuel, when you see this king, he's going to do something very specific. He's going to restrain Israel. Remember judges they keep disobeying? Here's this idea of the king needs to be the lawman. He needs to be the obedient one. And he needs to actually lead spiritually and restrain the people of Israel from their their sins. And then Samuel tells Saul, okay, I want to talk to you alone. Send your servant away. This is how chapter chapter 9 ends. And then in chapter 10, we see that Verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you to be prince over the people Israel? And you shall reign over the people, and Yahweh and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then he gives this long passage about what the sign's gonna be. Before we get there, I just want to say: here's what what Samuel says to Saul: You are the king. You're the promised one. Yahweh and you together are going to bring salvation from Israel, for Israel. And so there's this good news. And maybe we think, you know, Hannah says the humble will be exalted. Saul has a humble start, but maybe this is the king. And we're supposed to act our, ask ourselves, is this the king? And Samuel says, you'll know if it's the king or not by a specific thing. You're going to go out, you're going to meet a group of people, and they're going to tell you um, that... They're going to tell you that your donkeys have been found and now your dad's worried about you instead of the donkeys. Then you're going to uh, uh, go somewhere else and um, you're going to meet three men going up to the temple and then after that, you're going to meet a group of prophets near your home in Gibeah and they're going to all start prophesying and then you're going to prophesy. And then you'll know that what I'm saying is true. We can't get into all the details of that, but the spirit of the Lord, God's choice of the king, rushes upon Saul, and he prophesies. He's a king, but he's also going to be a prophet. Samuel was a, a priest, but he was also a prophet. And he, and he prophesies. And then there's this really weird part where he, he goes home, and his uncle said to him, verse 14, all this is happening, he says, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not found, we went to Samuel And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So his uncle's like, how was your day? What happened? He's like, oh, I found the donkeys. Maybe Saul had already had an interesting life, but this seems like a a kind of a, a mistake. He doesn't seem like he's confident about God's choice. I do think we're supposed to notice that. And then we get to this important section in verse 17 where Saul is actually proclaimed king. Now he's actually going to be proclaimed king. And verse 17 says, Now Samuel called the people together to Yahweh at Mitzpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. This is exactly, by the way, what happens when God gathers the people for the Mosaic Covenant. He calls them by their tribes. And Moses actually says in his final song, that's where Yahweh became king over Israel. At the Mosaic Covenant, when God gathered the peoples, Yahweh became a king in a special way. He's king of all the earth, but a special way to Israel. And so this is reminiscent. Now now you're choosing Saul over God. Samuel brought all the tribes near, and they, they, they did some, some gambling, you know. They, they, they chose Saul by lot. You know, they narrowed down and finally got to Saul. And then he's missing. And maybe he heard, you know, he heard Samuel's announcement, like, you've rejected God. He's like, I don't want to be the king, you know. I think some some commentators I think are like kind of harsh on Saul. I'm like, I think if I heard the prophet of Israel announcing, this is your king instead of God, you know, I don't know if I would be like running up the stairs to be anointed. But here's what we see here: we see that God is rejecting Israel, but we also see what what about Saul? He's beautiful on the outside. He's handsome, I mean, handsome and tall, but he's hiding in the baggage. And who tells them that? I think it, I, th- I just think it's funny because imagining myself there, it's, they're looking, is there a man still to come? And then Yahweh says, so it's like booming voice from heaven, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. <laughs> it's like, and of course, my mind instantly goes like a carousel. You know, he's like on there trying to go behind where they load the suitcases. Andrew is a Hebrew scholar. He can explain what they meant by baggage. I don't think that's what it was, but he's hiding. He's not He's not, he's not this great king. He's, he's not confident. And we're, we kind of get this, this mix of like he's, he's tall and handsome, but then he's also doesn't seem like he, in his heart he's really going to be a good king. But, but Samuel uh, uh, anoints him anyways. And then it says in verse 25, Then Samuel told the, pe- the people the rights and duties of the kingship. Where is that found? The rights and duties of the kingship. Deuteronomy 17. We read it this morning. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before Yahweh. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. All right, we're doing good here on time. So here's what happens now. Saul doesn't seem great. In the way he acts, he looks good on the outside, and even the people notice this, right? They they say, say, um, Samuel even says in verse 24, Do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. But then in verse 11, you see Saul, he's been chosen as king, but then he's doing something. He's out in the fields behind the oxen. And you kind of see this back and forth. Like Saul is this great king, but then he's doing things that's like, I don't think that's just what kings did back then. That's, that should be odd to us. Why is Saul now behind the oxen? He was just proclaimed king of Israel, king of all 12 tribes. And then, and then he's behind the oxen. So it seems like Saul hasn't really stepped into his kingship yet. But the event that brings Saul to really start acting like a king is there's this man named Nahash, Nahash the Ammonite, and he sieges this city called Jabesh Gilead. And I would love to get into the history of Jabesh Gilead in Judges and how it's connected to Saul's ancestors and how the 12, there's all these connections, but I don't have time, so you can talk to me about it after if you're interested. But there's a city, Jabesh Gilead, where Saul probably had some relatives and they're being attacked. And Nahash the Ammonite says, He surrounds the city and he says, "I'm going to take out all your right eyes, and then I'm going to let you live, so that Israel is ashamed." Here's a direct attack on God's people. Remember what the king's supposed to do? He's supposed to fight the battles. He's supposed to save the people of Israel. He's he's supposed to, to fight for the people. And so what's Saul going to do? He's plowing the oxen, but then we see, uh, for the second time, the Spirit of Yahweh rushes upon Saul. The Spirit empowers him. This is not the same way the Spirit... Uh, seals us it's a it's connected to his office it's later removed and David says take not your Holy Spirit from me that's that's different here but what we see is Saul filled with the Spirit of God rushes when he heard this words and his anger is greatly kindled and what he does is he takes his oxen and he cuts it up into pieces and sends pieces out all over Israel and says so shall it be done to your oxen if you do not come and fight with me today he rallies the people and they all come out, and it says they come out as one man. Saul is this unifying force, and he's, he seems to be courageous. It's almost like he's turned a corner. Maybe this is the humble one who will be exalted in First Samuel 2 in Hannah's prayer. And it seems like, wow, Saul is really stepping into his, his kingship, and he actually fights the battle. He destroys, it says, And they came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Maybe this is the king. We'd be forgiven for asking, is this the king? Because God already promised that he would set up his king through the rejection of him as king. And now we see this great deliverer. And then even better, the people say to Samuel, look at verse 12. Then the people say to Samuel, who is it that said, Saul, Saul, reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. People are like, who didn't like Saul. Let's kill him. And Saul says, right here, verse 13, maybe this is the king. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. He gives credit to the Lord and he says, don't put them to death. He shows the Lord's character. He's merciful and gracious to these people who seem like they were his enemies. This is good. This is making us think maybe this is the king, the promised one. Who will fight our battles for us. And then Samuel renews his kingdom. He goes up to Gilgal, and they basically redo the ceremony and say Saul has basically stepped up to the plate and is now truly the king. And they sacrifice peace offerings before Yahweh, and there Saul, and all the men of Israel rejoice greatly. This is Exciting! Finally, there's a king. Even though we sin by asking for it from Israel's perspective, there's still a king, and he's fighting our battles, and he's leading us, and he's merciful and gracious, and he gives credit to Yahweh. Is this the king? And now we'll see the answer. Chapter 12. Samuel, it's his farewell address. It's near the end of his life, and he asks the people a question. Have I ever... Done anything to you? Has there ever been any injustice that I've worked upon you? They say, No, Samuel, you've been a great leader. We don't have any, we don't have any witnesses against you. The Lord is witness against you, and the anointed is witness to this day that you have not found anything in my hand. But then Samuel says to the people: The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. And he repeats the history of God's salvation of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. He defeated their enemies. He was a good king. But then he says in verse 12, instead of trusting the Lord, instead of crying out to the Lord, instead of knowing the Lord will fight our battles for us, he he says, and when you saw that Nahash the king, verse 12, of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when Yahweh your God was your king. And for whom you have asked, behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. If you will fear Yahweh and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, and if both you and the king, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow Yahweh your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh but rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, then the hand of Yahweh will be against you and your king. You've rejected God. And now... Your blessing is based on the king. And it's a king that you've chosen. I haven't chosen this king. I've let you have him, but it's not the king of God's choosing that we'll see later in Samuel. And so this this feeling we're supposed to get when we get to this point in the passage is a a disappointment. Samuel's saying, now you're stuck with your king. And based on what he does and based on what you do, you're going to be judged. But I do want to bring out one principle here that's really important for understanding this story. And I think this will all make sense at the end, so stay with me. But there's this idea that the king and the people are integrally connected. What the king does affects the people, and what the people do affects the king. The king has to follow the Lord, and so does the people. And there's, there's not really a mixing. And actually, later, as we get more ideas about the Messiah and who he'll be, by the time of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah, God addresses the king as Israel. He even says Israel, and he's referring to the Messiah. So we're starting to see here this connection between God and his people. That as it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. As it goes for the people, so it goes for the king. And Samuel calls down uh, thunder from Yahweh to prove that everything he's saying is from God. And this is like having, uh, it's thunder in the wheat harvest. It's like having thunder in June, and it probably destroys the crops. This is a verification of what he said. And how do the people respond? Verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to Yahweh your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have, you have done all this evil. Yet do not so- turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear Yahweh and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still, here's our principle again. But if you still do wickedly, You shall be swept away, both you and your king. So Samuel kind of is the bearer of bad news. He says, you've rejected Yahweh. You have your king. And as it goes for the king, so it goes for the people. It's almost like, okay, we'll see what happens here. And then we get into Saul's downfall. Uh, Chapter 13, we see that Saul is reigning over Israel. And the Philistines come out to fight. And there's tons. It's a huge army. The people of Israel are so afraid. They're running. They're hiding in caves. They're even crossing the Jordan and going to a different place. They're going towards other areas where the Philistines are to hide out. This is scary. Philistines are here. What's the king going to do? Is he going to defeat the enemies? Is this the king? And we kind of ask sort of more aware that it's probably not. But we still are asking, is this the king? And it says that all the people, in verse 7, followed Saul trembling. They're afraid. Verse 8, he waited seven days, a time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to him to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of Yahweh, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of Yahweh, your God with which he commanded you. What's going on here? There's there's a lot going on here, but here's what I want to point out. Saul is supposed to be the law man, remember? The king knows and obeys the law. He's the expert. He wrote and copied every part of the law. And what does the law say? Who can offer sacrifices? The priests, the Levites. Saul is showing here, and we're supposed to notice, this is not the law man. This is not the Torah man. This is not the king who obeys. He doesn't even know enough to to wait for the Levitical priest to offer the sacrifice. Or if he knows enough, he doesn't care. This is the first real concrete evidence. This is not the king we've been waiting for. And and Samuel says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart, and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his peoples, because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. Based on Saul's disobedience, it's not going to be his descendants who reign on the throne. We're almost done with the second question here, and then we'll, we'll answer how this applies. And in chapter 14, we see Jonathan, not Saul. He's the one. He's kind of a foil of Saul, and he shows that Jonathan actually is trusting the Lord. He fights the battles for Saul, and it's only once he begins to win that all the people follow Jonathan instead of Saul. And then Saul makes this rash vow. He says, if anyone eats any food before we get to these people, let him be killed. And Jonathan, his son, the one who's worked this great salvation, doesn't know about it. And so what does he do? He finds some honey, and he takes the tip of his staff, puts it in his mouth, and it says his eyes became bright. They're running after the Philistines. It seems like God's given them into this hand, and then Saul says, no more calories. And they're expected to keep fighting. And then Jonathan says, the salvation wasn't as great as it could have been today because of your rash vow. And then the chapter ends with all the people coming together and casting lots and they're figuring out whose fault it is and the lots fall upon Jonathan. And Saul says, I'm going to put you, Jonathan, my son, to death. And here's what I think we're supposed to notice here. The law provided for rash vows. In Leviticus, if you made a rash vow, there was a way to get out of it. You you offer a certain sacrifice and the word here for what the people do is the people actually redeem Jonathan. They say, Saul, you're not going to kill Jonathan. And I think that word here is them redeeming him, them offering that sacrifice to God saying, Saul made a rash vow, but there's a way out. So what do we see here? The people are teaching the king the law. The king is supposed to be the expert. He's supposed to be the lawman. He's supposed to be the obedient one, but instead the people, it's flipped. And even if that's not the case, we see here Saul doesn't understand the heart of the law. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. He's making these rash vows. He's not a good leader. It even leads to the people. Instead of sacrificing, they actually eat all of the animals with the blood, which is another thing that points out that Saul is not the leader we're expecting because he's not the king who follows the law. And finally, chapter 15. I'm going to just read this here and we'll, we'll end. Um, I think it's helpful to read the whole thing. Verse 1 And Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Saul's so far doing what he's supposed to. And then here comes another disappointment. Verse 8, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lamb, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, all that was despised and worthless. They devoted to destruction. The word of Yahweh came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to Yahweh all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to Yahweh, I have performed the commandment of Yahweh. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what Yahweh said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes and you are not the head of the tribes of Israel, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Yahweh anointed you king over Israel and Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey? Obey. The voice of Yahweh, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh. I have gone on the mission on which Yahweh sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in Gilgal. Then Samuel says, Has Yahweh as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, which Saul will do later, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. And then Saul says, go up with me before Yahweh. And Samuel says, no, as the king. And then says, Saul says, go up to me, with me before Yahweh as a man. And Samuel goes. Then Samuel said, verse 32, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul and Yahweh regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Deuteronomy 25. This is the law that, that Saul was to have memorized, to have written down, to know, to be the king, the lawman that he already, we already know he isn't because he, he offers the sacrifices and doesn't know that part of the law. He doesn't know about ransoming from rash vows. Deuteronomy 25, there's some miscellaneous laws. Verse 11 is very interesting. I'm not going to read it. I'm glad I don't have that section to preach today. Uh, but if you skip down to verse 17, around all these different commands, we'll see this. Here's a command from God. Along with all the commands of sacrifice, along with all these other commands, what does it say? Verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when Yahweh your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This is the book that Saul is supposed to be living by. He memorized it. He teaches the people. And yet again, Saul chose himself to not be obedient. He's not the obedient king. He's disobedient. In offering sacrifices, yes. Also in um, not the rash vow. And then in this situation, by not destroying Amalek. And, and I want just, to just point out here, as soon as we get distracted by this in apologetics to try to say, you know, how do we explain this? I can talk to you more about this after, but we need to remember that God is the judge of every person that has ever lived on this earth. And in this situation, God had appointed judgment Immediately. Not for afterlife, but he had judged people then, and that is his right. And we are the clay, and he is the potter. And we should not say to him, what have you done? There's more we could say about that, and there's differences. Even Abraham, he's making treaties, and Moses, it's the kingdom, you know, kingdom principles. It's an intrusion from God's judgment on earth. And I, I can talk to you about that after, but we need to close. There's one more thing that I want to point out. Remember Numbers 24? Remember how I read from that, the prophecy from Balaam, and it's like, he's going to be this king over all the nations? I didn't read the whole thing. Numbers 24, verse 7. Here's the prophecy of Balaam. Way before, as the people come out of Israel, he says, not only do we see that he's supposed to kill Agag from Deuteronomy, the law that he's supposed to have memorized, but we also see Numbers 24, verse 7, about the Messiah. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces. There's a prophecy that the king who comes is going to defeat the nations. He's going to defeat Amalek, and Saul has this opportunity, and he knows his prophecy. He's supposed to, because he's written it down, and he knows the duties of the law, and he's supposed to obey God. He's been sent on a mission. Just like Adam, he's supposed to guard the garden. I think you actually see parallels there where Saul sees that all of this stuff is good. And the people pounce on it, but it's good, and then he blames the people. It wasn't me, it was the people. It's like Adam. And Saul is disobedient. So just like Adam's disobedience, we see highlighted here Saul's disobedience. And so how does this fit in redemptive history? Point number three: Saul's. Saul shows us our need for an obedient king. This is the point of this message. Saul shows us our need for an obedient king. Saul points to the king who would actually obey through his disobedience. And we see pictures on the positive side later in David. But but I want to go back, and we'll close with this, but I want to go back to 1 Samuel 15 when he says, Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. It's better to obey and to listen than to sacrifice. And what does David sing to the Lord in Psalm chapter 40? Right. What does David say? He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. But you have given me an open ear. Remember, it's better to listen than the fat of rams. Burn offering and sin offering—you have not required. Then I said, "Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book; it is written to me." he, he sees the law, man. He's paying attention to the book. I desire to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart—not just external obedience, but obedience from the heart. And David says, sings this, but we, we know from, from the book of Hebrews that this is not fulfilled in David. Because what does David do? His heart is led astray. He fails. But, but what, what do we need? We, Saul points us to the, the need for the obedient king. And we see that this is Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world... As he's coming into the world, what does he say? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will he does away with the first in order to establish the second and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all we have an obedient king all of these figures point us to the disobedient king. They need to be the lawman. They need to not just hear, but obey. And there's this expectation. And, and there's not only an expectation of obedience, but there's a tie between us and the king. As it goes with the king, so it goes for the people. As it goes for the people, so it goes for the king. And even Jesus is called Israel himself. And this, this connection between the people and the Messiah is made even more clear as Jesus comes And as it went for us in our sin, in our judgment, in our wickedness that we have disobeyed God and we would have chosen a king for ourselves just like Saul and we still do. He took that. As it went for us, it went for him. He was punished for things that he had never done. And as it went for him, So it goes for us. He obeyed the law perfectly, and he was raised from the dead, and we are justified in his resurrection. And so we are treated according to what Christ has done, and he was treated according to what we have done. And that's why he says here in Hebrews 10, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. I've come to do your will. I've come to be the true sacrifice. These sacrifices could never take away sin, but I've come to offer myself for the sins of my people. We have an obedient king. We have the righteousness of obedient king credited to us and our sin to him. And this is what we need. And this is why the Old Testament's important. It makes us rejoice. We have a lot of suffering going on in our church right now, but we have a king who is sovereign over every molecule. And we know he is totally good. And he is totally powerful. And even the hard things that come into our life come from the hand of our king, the hands that are pierced by nails for our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We love you, and we're so thankful for our king, Jesus Christ. We have his righteousness. He has taken our sin. And that's why we pray in his name. When we say in Jesus' name, what we mean is for Jesus' sake. Our only way to approach you is based on the blood of the Lamb. So help us to live for him. Help us to be faithful soldiers, men and women for our king. We pray all these things in his high and exalted and matchless name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne. Amen.